Murder and Anger from the sermon series, Sermon on the Mount, spoken by Pastor Peter on. For those of you who know me, you kind of know that uh, I am not really good with putting together furniture in a box. Uh, I'm just not a handy person at all. And uh, I've tried many times. I have failed every time. In fact, in my office, there is one bookshelf that doesn't have too many books on it. And the reason why is because I built it. And if you touch it a little bit aggressively, I promise you it's going to tip over. And I can't put a lot of books on it because it won't, it's not strong enough. And so I know that I am not capable of this. And whenever I see a box that has furniture inside of it, there's sort of a warning sign that goes off that tells me to get away from it. Because if I try to pursue it and try to open it up and, fit and put it together, I'm probably going to destroy it. I really am. My mother called me about a month ago, and she said she bought a new TV stand. She just got a new TV, and she said, could you come over and put it together for me? And I told her, I said, no, I will not put it together for you. I'm going to send my wife, Jenny. And Jenny is so much better at putting that together than I am. In fact, I went with Jenny. I just handed her the screwdriver. I handed her the hammer. I just did whatever she told me to do, and she put that thing together beautifully without one error, which was really great. I know from just my own experience that when I see a box and there's, a, there's furniture inside of that box, there's sort of like a radar that goes off in my soul. And it says, get as far away as you can from that box. Because if I try it, if I don't get far away from it, it's going to lead to some level of destruction. I know that's kind of a funny example, but I think that example is going to help us to kind of wrestle with this text in which Jesus is trying to teach us. We are now in the section on the Sermon on the Mount where we call it the sixth antithesis. And for the next six weeks, we are going to take a passage in scripture that Jesus talks about, and he says, you have heard it was said, but now I tell you. Scarlet is called that the sixth antithesis. And the very first one is this. Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, if you are angry at someone, you are a murderer. Every single one of us, we know that murder is wrong. We do. And I think no one would disagree with us, uh, with me on that, because we know how awful murder is. But Jesus goes deeper, and he says, if you have an angry thought, if you are angry at someone, Jesus says, you and I, we are all murderers. And what Jesus wants you and I to do is that when we begin to get angry, like the way I look at a furniture that's not built and it's in a box, it's like a radar that goes off. When we begin to get angry at someone, there should be a little alarm that goes off in our soul that says, if we don't deal with this, it's going to lead to our destruction. Danger, the, the, the root word of danger is anger. And we have to be careful. We have to know that when we get angry, we are in a very precarious, a very dangerous situation. So what I want to do today, if you'll just allow me, is that I want to first talk about why is anger so destructive? Because all of us, we struggle with it at some capacity. Why is this so destructive and how do we begin to deal with it? All right, so let's get to this first antithesis. All right, it's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. I'm reading from the New International Version. Here's what it says. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. 
Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. God, we come to you. We all admit that there has been anger in our lives, for some greater than others. And for some, we are living a life of loneliness because of it. Because the people we love the most end up getting hurt. Lord, it's amazing that you taught this 2,000 years ago, and yet we still struggle with anger, probably even more so today than 2,000 years ago. So God, I pray that you'll just be with us. Holy Spirit, enter every home that's watching, every car that might be watching in the car, wherever we might be. I pray that you would speak to us that you would reach into the inner depths of our soul and that you would begin to challenge us, pour out your grace and give us an unwavering desire to want to do battle with our anger so that it no longer takes control of our lives. And so I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts watching today would indeed be pleasing unto you. It's in your name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, the purpose of the sixth antithesis really isn't necessarily for Jesus to disregard the Old Testament laws. That's not what Jesus is about. Sometimes we kind of draw that conclusion. In fact, Pastor Hosang last Sunday talked about that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And what Jesus was trying to do here, because he believed, Jesus believed in the Old Testament laws. He does. And what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to give sort of the, the fresh interpretation or the real interpretation that needed to happen. Because what was happening during the first century is that the religious leaders, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, some of the religious leaders, they were taking these Mosaic laws, these Old Testament laws, and they were kind of focusing on sort of a, an outside-in kind of a discipleship, if you will. What's an outside-in kind of a discipleship? It's, it's basically just saying, here's a list of things that you don't do. If you don't do these things, you are a good follower of God. Therefore, if you don't murder anyone, guess what? You are a good follower of God. Therefore, if you don't commit adultery on your spouse, you are a good follower of God. Jesus was not about outside-in kind of discipleship. He was all about an inside-out kind of a discipleship, which he really does care about your motivation and my motivation of why we choose not to murder. And that motivation simply has to be our commitment to not wanting to be angry anymore because if we allow anger to fester, it matures and it grows into a behavior quite possibly to murder taking the life of someone else. Inside-out discipleship is concerned about relationships. It's concerned about our relationship with God. It's concerned about our relationships with other people. That's the heart of it. If you want to be considered a good follower of Jesus Christ, it's not necessarily about you following a set of rules that maybe you grew up with uh, that you sort of feel like, if I do these things, then I'm a good Christian. Like Shirley said, we have to have a deeper love, a profound love for the Bible. Now, some of you grew up and you were taught that if you don't read the Bible and pray, you're not a good Christian. That's outside in discipleship. 
Inside out discipleship is this, is that you are so enchanted with God that you've connected with him in such a way that you long for his presence, that you will pray to him and you will go and open up the word of God and you'll let God minister to you through your presence. That's inside out. Your motivation is just as important as the practice in which you are performing in order to get closer to God. Inside out discipleship cares not only about your relationship with God, but cares about your relationship with other people the people that you are in relationships with. If you want to be a good follower of God, this is all teachings on being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have to ask yourself, what are my relationships look like today? What's going on in my relationships with the people who are closest to me? Shirley reminded us of that, particularly men. She challenged us men to ask ourselves, how are we doing in our relationships with the women that we love and care for today? And if you want to be considered a disciple of Jesus Christ, Jesus teaching this not to look down on the Pharisees or the religious leaders. He could care less about looking down on those people. What he cares about is you and how you're living your life in relationships because a true disciple knows how to live in healthy relationship with God and with other people. That's a mark of spirituality. That's a mark of true discipleship. And so if you and I want to pursue God, this is a non-negotiable. And Jesus is going as far as to say that anger, if we are angry, he is calling you and I a murderer, which is, I know, very, very strong language. Why is anger so destructive? The reason why anger is so destructive is because it's the root of murder. Anger is the root of murder, and if anger is the root of murder, it deserves the same penalty as murder. Nobody murders somebody. Nobody takes the life of someone because they're not angry. They do it because they are. And that anger wasn't just something that just happened right then and there. It was an anger that probably marinated in their souls over time. And after a while, it gets to a point where they decide to take the life of someone. And maybe, maybe you have not taken the life of someone physically. But I bet you've murdered people with your thoughts. I bet in your anger you have murdered people, you have wished destruction, you have even wished death upon certain people because of your anger. I bet because of your anger you have murdered relationships in the sense where you've cut people off in your life because you're so angry with them and you've never ever once thought about the anger you've caused in other people. A lot of times when we get angry, we only think about what other people have done to us, but we never give regard or an understanding of how have I hurt other people? How have I hurt other people? First John 3.15, he says this. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. I want to read that again because that's a powerful text here. The Apostle John says, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no, one, no murderer has eternal life residing in them. This is how deep the emotion of anger is, and you and I have to do battle with this. Now, I do have to go on and say that there is such a thing as righteous anger. Ephesians 4, 6 teaches us that. We see in the scripture, that in, in the gospel, that Jesus was angry at times, but that was righteous indignation. Remember when he took a whip out and he started whipping the religious leaders who were selling the chickens and selling different livestock for the sacrifice in the temple to make money? Jesus was angry, but that wasn't sinful. That was a righteous indignation. When you and I hear stories of a parent 
physically abusing their child, emotionally, sexually abusing a child, we should get angry. That's righteous indignation. When we hear stories of grandmothers, Asian grandmothers and grandfathers walking on the street, just trying to get to point A and point B, and yet they are physically assaulted just because they're Asian, we should get angry. That's righteous indignation. That's an anger that God wants you to have. When you hear stories of a husband physically abusing their wife, emotionally, whatever it might be, we should get angry. That is righteous indignation, and that kind of anger usually leads to justice. So that's a good anger. That's an anger you and I should have. We shouldn't try to deal with that because that often, de- often sort of uh, matures into justice. The anger that Jesus is talking about is very different than righteous anger. He's talking about an anger that leads to murder. Anger that leads to destruction. Anger is the root of murder, right? So you gotta ask yourself, why? Why is anger the root of murder? Why is anger the root of murder? Because the truth is, you and I, we have a litany of people that we're angry with today. There's quite a bit of people we are pretty upset with today. Why is anger the root of murder? Anger is the root of murder because it destroys the Imago Dei in the person. The Imago Dei, Imago Dei means image of God. Do you believe that God created everyone in his image? If you do, can I just get a virtual amen? Do you believe that God created every single person? What do we have, 7, 8 billion, 7.5 billion people on this planet? Do you believe the 7.5 billion people that are on this planet have been created in the image of God? I know you do because the Bible teaches us that. And if that's the case, when you and I get angry, what we do is we destroy the Imago Dei in them. And that's why we're capable of murdering them. There's no other emotion that could destroy the Imago Dei in someone than our anger. And when you and I are not careful with it, what we do is we end up destroying people. And those people, and the saddest part of all this is that when we do that, they no longer see themselves in the Imago Dei. The abused no longer see themselves in the Imago Dei. And in fact, if they're little and they're being abused in that way, what they'll begin to believe is they'll begin to believe that they're not the Imago Dei, that there's something wrong with them. And as a result of that, that's why they're receiving that kind of abuse. That's the only way young little kids can internalize things like that. And your anger at people right now, hear me on this, what you are doing is you are destroying the Imago Dei in them. And if you don't deal with that anger over time, maybe you will not physically murder them, but you will murder them with your thoughts. How is that not sin? How is that not sin? How does that not get God upset? How does, not, how does that not get God to a place where he's worried about you and your spiritual state when you have that kind of anger because you have taken away something in which God has created in someone? in his image. How could that not be a sin? You see, discipleship at the end of the day is this idea that you and I have to realize that we have all been created in the Imago Dei. And what truly marks us as a follower and a mature person of God is to understand that we have to live in healthy relationships. When we don't do that, we can't be a good disciple. Because discipleship is more than about how much Bible you know, how many hours you pray a day. It's about do you have an intimate relationship with your God? Do you have a healthy relationship with your God? Do you have a healthy relationship with other people? I got together with lunch with a a church member about a week ago. He's slowly creeping up to his 40s. 
And as we were having lunch together, we started talking about midlife crisis. I guess because that's the age usually when men and women, but men will start to hit a midlife crisis. And so this friend of mine was under the assumption that men will often hit their midlife crisis because they haven't achieved the goals they set for themselves when they're in their 20s and 30s. And I think at some levels that is true, but it's not entirely true. Because I have friends who are in their 40s and 50s and they've actually superseded their goals and they still hit a midlife crisis. And so when I was talking with him, I said, the midlife crisis happens in men. And I can only speak for men. I can't speak for women because I'm not a woman. But for men, it's not because we haven't achieved certain things. We haven't made certain kind of income that we've hoped to. It plays a small role. But the main reason why we hit a midlife crisis is because we wonder if there's anyone who actually would care for us, celebrate our life when we turn 40, when we turn 50. We wonder if we actually have real friends. You see, because we've been creating the Imago Day, that means God created us for relationships. And we get older, like in our 40s and 50s, and we start getting closer to sort of the tail end of our lives, we start to wonder what really matters to us is do we have community? Do I truly have friends that will celebrate with me on big occasions in my life? And when the answer to that is no, we hit a crisis. We get depressed. Because every single one of us, we were created in the Imago Day. We were created for community. You were created to be fully known. You were created to be fully loved, even in the midst of your junk. And if you keep hiding things, if you keep hiding your junk from people because you feel like you might not be accepted, then you'll never know what it means to be fully loved by God. That's what happens. And I said to him, I said, it all has to do with how we deal with anger that if we can't deal with anger properly, who wants to be your friend if you get them angry? Who wants to be your friend if you end up hurting them? No, not too many. And so the heart of life today, part of us dealing with anger in some ways is to understand that we have to truly do battle with our anger. That if we don't, we will begin to destroy the Imago Dei in people. Now, I want you to know that anger isn't something that just came from you. Oftentimes, it's generational. The reason why we're angry today is because it probably came from our parents, our grandparents. And listen, I think all of them have done the best with what they could. We don't blame them. But it's important for you to go back and start doing the hard work of looking at where is this coming from. Because anger is probably one of the most contagious emotions out there. It's more contagious than COVID. Really, it is. It's like COVID on steroids that when you get angry, people around you will be, be impacted by it, and it will be so contagious that they too will become angry. And so parents, be careful. I know this quarantine has been hard, but when you get angry at your children, be careful, because what you're doing is you are being contagious, and they too will begin to inherit that characteristic of you, and it will begin to ravage their lives, particularly as they become older as well. We have to be careful. We have to do the work of discovering where does this anger come from. For a lot of us, it is generational. Listen, if we don't deal with our anger the way Jesus is teaching us here in this passage, you're no better than a murderer. You're no better than a murderer. All right, so how do we deal with our anger? How do you and I deal with our anger? I got two thoughts for you here in this passage that Jesus teaches us. If you and I want to truly deal with our anger, and I use that word deal simply because we're always going to have to deal with our anger. 
There's never gonna come a point in our lives where we're not gonna be angry. We will always be angry at some levels, but how do we begin to deal with it? When we start to experience anger, how does that become like a warning sign that we have to begin to start dealing with it? Jesus gives us two amazing things that we have to begin to do. First, we deal with our anger by valuing people's names. You deal with your anger by valuing people's names. I think the first thing that goes out the window once you get angry is you don't value the name of a person and you substitute it with derogatory names when you get angry. Look at verse 22. He says, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And then anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Raka is in the Greek, it literally means empty headed. It means idiot. All right, fool, moray in the Greek, it, it's the root in which you and I get the word moron. When we get angry and we call somebody an idiot, when we call somebody a moron or a fool, what we are doing is we are taking away their name and we're placing it with that derogatory name. Do you know why when we get angry we destroy the Imago Dei? Because it's not just because we're angry, it's because what we usually do when we get angry. It's the names we call people when we get angry that we destroy the Imago Dei in them and we replace it with literally this derogatory name. Now in the first century, names were very important. Names had deep meaning, not like names today. I think in the West, we, we change our names. You know, I immigrated to this country and I changed my name. I have a Korean name, Chung-kun, but I changed it to Peter. All right? A lot of us, we did that because we want to assimilate with culture better. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but understand, first century, you never change your name because your name had tremendous meaning. And when somebody said idiot or moron or a fool to you, it was a severe attack on your humanity. And one of the ways in how you deal with your anger is that when you get angry, just say, I must value this person's name. I must not call them what I want to call them. Because when you do that, you destroy the Imago Dei and you replace their identity with the destructive, the derogatory name in which you have given them. How many times in our anger have we called somebody certain things that we regret? How many times when we get cut off on the highway do we give somebody a name that we feel is appropriate because we're angry? How many times in our anger have we looked at our co-worker, and we've said terrible things to them because they've angered us. I know this quarantine has been difficult. Domestic violence is off the charts right now. How many times in our anger with our spouse have we said terrible things to them? Moron, fool, idiot, maybe even worse. How many times have we done that? How many times, parents, have we done this because our kids get us angry and annoyed? And how many times have we said names to them? Moron, fool, idiot, things like that. How many times, because we're angry at ourselves, have we taken our name away, taken the image of God that God's created us in, and we've attached a derogatory name to ourselves? How many times have we done that? Stop it. God doesn't want you to sort of progress into this. He doesn't want you to say, this is not a journey. He wants you to stop it. Because if you continue in this path, you're never gonna be able to preserve the Imago Dei. You're never gonna be able to help people understand that they are created in the image of God. 
And so the response of how do we deal with our anger is this, stop calling people names. No matter what, value the name in which they have. Value the truth that they've been created in the Imago Dei. Value their names. Because if you don't do that, what happens is that they will begin to believe that they are that in which you're calling them, especially if they're in a relationship with you. Over time, if they hear that name over and over and over again, they're going to begin to believe that that's who they are. How are they ever going to get on a path where they're going to be able to know the height and depth and width of God's love when they start to believe that they're, they're an idiot or that they're a moron or a fool? Even worse things that we might say to them. So this is not sort of take your time, work on this. Jesus says, stop it and stop it now. There has to be a sense of urgency to want to stop. Second way in how we deal with our anger, the very last way, is we do it through immediate conciliation. Immediate conciliation. Verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the office, officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I love the sense of urgency here. Jesus is saying, listen, don't even come to church. And Jesus wants you at church. It's the house of God. The community of believers make up the house of God. He wants you here, but he's saying this. If you're angry at someone, go and make amends with them. I love the emphasis though that Jesus puts here. He doesn't say, go to somebody that has angered you and reconcile with them. What he does, it's even harder. He says, Think about the people you've angered and go and make amends with them. That's a whole different level. You see, it's, Jesus knew that his disciples aren't going to be perfect. He knew that as they were going to live their lives for God the best they could and sort of and establish the church, he knew that in that time that they were going to probably get a few people angry. And Jesus wanted them to do the hard work because discipleship is simply about asking yourself, what have I done? Discipleship is simply concerning yourself with righteousness. God cares about your righteousness. He doesn't care about the other person's righteousness. He cares more about your righteousness. And if you care about your righteousness, you got to ask yourself, who have I angered? What have I done in my anger that I have lashed out and hurt other people? Because you know hurt people will hurt other people. Or maybe a better way to say it is that angry people will definitely make other people angry. So you got to ask yourself, who have I angered? And Jesus says, don't even come to church until you reconcile. So there's a sense of urgency, a sense of immediacy that we do this right away, take care of it, and come back. And you think about that. Think about the people you've angered today. Who have you angered and upset today? I love this, why Jesus tells us to do Because some of you are thinking, but shouldn't I just confront the people who've angered me? Yes, you can do that, but Jesus is more concerned as a disciple because he cares about your righteousness. He wants you to take care of the people you have angered. Reconcile, pursue that conciliation. I use the word conciliation because at the end of the day, you and I have no power. We have no ability to bring forth reconciliation. Reconciliation is a God-given thing. 
Only God can bring reconciliation. Your job and my job is to do the conciliation part. We are to go and we are to try to make right what we've done wrong. And what I love about this, I love the progression that Jesus is doing here. As you and I think about discipleship, as we think about our righteousness, and we think about those that we've actually hurt in our lives, and those that we've angered, he says, go and make amends with them. And when we do that, you know what begins to happen? We get empathy. We grow in deeper empathy, not to the people we've angered only, but we have more empathy towards the people who have angered us. And we say, you know what? I understand why maybe they reacted that way and they said this to me because I've done the same thing. I've done the same thing. I know what it's like. And perhaps God can do a deeper work in your soul, in your heart as you do that. I love Jesus. I love what he's doing here. And he's teaching us that inside-out discipleship, this antithesis that he's teaching us is simply what he cares about is relationships. Just because you don't murder someone, it doesn't mean you're a good follower of God. Jesus says we got to do battle with our anger because if we don't deal with it, it's the root of murder and it can be a matter of time before we end up taking matters into our own hands. Jesus is teaching us that this antithesis of not being angry is really the best way in how you and I can reflect the glory of God. Sometimes we think we give God glory as we come in church and worship him. Yes, yes, at some levels. But if you really want to give God glory, it's about living in healthy relationships with other people. Nothing brings God more glory when you and I can live in healthy relationships with one another. Nothing gives God more glory when people see that a husband and a wife love each other and respect each other, nothing brings God's more, God more glory when children and parents are in a good, healthy relationship. Nothing brings God more glory than that. Even in the midst of times you get angry at one another, that you can work through that, you work on that conciliation. So stop name calling. Value people's names. Pursue conciliation with immediacy. Jesus says, as you're on your way to court, don't go to court, settle the matter right there. Otherwise, you're gonna be in big trouble. And you know who the judge is. The judge is God. Settle it before God has to be the judge of it. You know, Jesus starts off the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, those eight virtues, and that's why he has to, because if you and I are not about living out those eight virtues, we're not gonna be able to do this. We're not gonna be able to do battle, and we're not gonna be able to deal with our anger there's no way we're going to be able to stop name-calling. There's no way we're going to pursue conciliation with those we've angered if we're not committed to being poor in spirit and if we're not committed to being a peacemaker. If we are, that we can deal with our anger. So stop name-calling. Value the people's names, even when you're angry, and pursue conciliation with expediency. So a lot of you know my story, and you know I grew up in a physically abusive home. Um, out of my sisters, uh, two sisters, two older sisters, I got beat the most. Uh, I got beat, number one, just because my father was, when he would drink, he would get aggressive. That was absolutely wrong. But I also got beat because I was a bad kid. I was a real bad kid. And so my father would hit me. And the thing that my father did every time he would hit me was that he would always say this word in Korean, which is translated stupid. Every time, before he would hit me, he would say that word stupid. 
And as a little kid, being beaten like that and being told that, as he was giving me, sort of renaming me, I started to believe deeply that I was a stupid child, that I wasn't very smart. And that impacted me in such a negative way, so much so, in so many different ways. And I still remember uh, um, in seminary, in my last semester, I took uh, a couple pass-fail classes. And one of my pass-fail classes was history, church history. I, you know, I, I didn't put much effort into it. But when I was in seminary, I want you to know that I had to get straight A's. If I didn't get straight A's, I believed that I was stupid. And so I studied harder than most of my classmates. I spent more time writing papers than most of my classmates because I had to prove to myself that I was not stupid. Well, what happened was my last semester, I took too many pass-fail classes, I guess that semester and semesters previously, so my history class wasn't pass-fail. But nobody decided to tell me that. And when I got my report card and I saw a C next to that class, I flipped out. I went to the professor. I said that this was a pass-fail class. He says, no, you're not eligible for pass-fail. But then I said, you should have told me. He wouldn't change my grade or he wouldn't give me a chance to do extra credit work. I got so upset, I went to the dean and I sat down with the dean and I explained everything to him. And he said, sorry, I can't do anything. And I started to get really angry. And he just looked at me and said, it's just a C. Don't worry about it. You still passed the class? But it wasn't just a C for me. For me, it affirmed something in me that I believed deep within myself. That messed me up. It took me a long time to get to a place where I'm at now and I don't need a grade to determine whether I'm smart or not. That I know I'm smart. It took a lot of work, a lot of counseling for me to get to that place. I wouldn't be able to lead a church like Metro if I wasn't smart. And so God sort of helped me through that. But the two people I've hurt the most in my life that I still carry some level of regret, but I'm grateful that things have worked out, is well, number one, my sister. Because I've believed I was stupid, my sister has a learning disability, Susan. And because of that, when we were teenagers, I never wanted her to go to church with me. Because for some reason, the youth pastor would always call her to read the Bible. And when she would read it, she, didn't, she couldn't read it without stumbling over the words. And every time she did that, I just felt like everyone was looking at me and not her. And they thought, well, if she's your sister, then you too must be stupid. And so I didn't want her to come to church. I, when she said she wasn't going, I was relieved because she embarrassed me and she affirmed that I was not smart. And I remember when I was in seminary and God showed me that, I remember just weeping because I thought the reason why she wasn't a Christian was because of other Christians and what they did to her, but I realized the reason why she's not a follower of God is because of me. I remember just calling her and I asked her to forgive me. And I said, I'm so sorry and I want you to know that. Please, how I've treated you over the years, I want you to know that that's not how God sees you. My sister is like God in many ways. She just forgave me, she cried with me. And she said, it's okay, don't worry about it, Peter. And you know where the redemptive part of all that is? That's how I got the vision for Metro. The vision of Metro really is about transformation, but what is it about in essence? It's about commonality that we find not in our strengths, but in our weaknesses. That's what brings us together. And I just said, what would it look like if my sister could come to a church like Metro? She wouldn't be judged. She could have friends that went to colleges. She could even lead a small group. That is the kingdom of God. God redeemed the anger and how I dealt with my sister in that way. 
The other, kid, the other person that I really impacted when she was a little child was my daughter, Christina, and many of you know the story. She used to be such a, a, a happy kid, and she used to come home and say, Daddy, let's do our homework. And I was like, all right, come on, let's do it. And I'd help her with it, and she was getting things wrong, and I started to get a little frustrated, and then she got her state scores back. I forget what grade, she was about eight, nine years old. And I saw that she got a 70 in her math and a 70 in her English, and when that was the score that I saw, I just believed that the reason why she got that was because I'm stupid. And so what I did was I put so much pressure on this little girl, I can't tell you how many times I yelled at her. And as she was crying and doing her homework, she was wetting her paper, and I would yell at her for crying because she was destroying her paper. I knew I was destroying this little girl. And if I didn't work on this, something deep was going to happen. And I, and I wish I could tell you that it was through prayer, you know, through fasting that God helped me. But it really wasn't. Again, it was through community. It was through my friends who were close to me and who saw me and saw how I treated Christina just when I wasn't even angry with her and they started noticing that I was showing her less affection than other kids, than my other kids. And then I realized that because she was failing me, I was showing her less love. And I remember just when God showed me that, I, I went up to her and I asked her to forgive me. I said, would you please, I will never, ever, ever be angry with you like that again. I will never call you names again when I'm upset, when you can't get something right. I will do the best I can to love you and care for you the best I can. And of course, the great thing about children is that they will always forgive you. And she forgave me. She forgave me. And I want you to know that she's 19 years old now. And she's in college, she's at Rutgers, and she's been there for three semesters, and all three semesters, she's made it on the dean's list. She's doing better in school, even though she was on National Honor Society as in high school, than she is in college. She's doing better in college. I can't believe how well she's doing. Sometimes I tell her, I'm like, chill out, don't, don't work so hard, it's okay. Go out and have some fun. But she's just determined she wants to do the best she can. She has great friends that they study together and they have fun doing it. The reason why I share that with you is this. It's not too late. It's not too late. You might think it is. You might think your anger has destroyed these relationships and it's over. It's not over. God is about restoration. He's about discipleship. He's about you living in healthy relationships. And he just wants you to know right now, rather than you thinking that it's too late, he just wants you to start doing things with immediacy. Pursue conciliation. Not tomorrow, but today. Go and connect and talk. Ask for forgiveness. And let God bring forth that reconciliation. And when you and I get angry with someone, would we stop calling them names? That take away the name that they have that affirms the very Imago Dei in them. Jesus truly cares about your discipleship. And our discipleship is truly about living in healthy relationship with him and with other people. So stop name calling and pursue conciliation with immediacy. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. What I'd like you to do right now is I want you to sort of pick a few people that you feel like you've angered, that you've hurt, and I want you to ask God, or if you can, maybe it's, that's even hard for you. I want you to put yourself in their position and see 
for maybe a perspective you have not seen before, that what it would have been like if you were that person and you unleashed the fury that you unleashed on them. I want you to feel that, that pain. And I want you to ask God to forgive you. Ask God to forgive you for those you've angered. Let's do the hard work of that. And I'm just going to pray for us. It's not too late, Metro. And I want you to know that if you're willing to pursue conciliation, God will be faithful. It might take time for that person to forgive you. Your part and the only thing you're responsible for is to pursue conciliation. Understand what you have done, the weight of it, before you ask for forgiveness so that it can be real and authentic. And be committed going forward that in your anger that you will no longer call people names. Because if we do that, we replace their original name with the name that you're giving them. And they'll never be able to see themselves as someone who's created in God's image. And so God, I pray you'll be with our church. I pray that everyone who's watching, they're sensing your presence and they're being convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray right now that you would release them from their bitterness and their anger. And God, that you'll begin to show them, Lord, what they have done, the damage that have caused, that they have caused, not so they can feel little about themselves or feel terrible about themselves, but God, that you would show them that there's hope, that there's hope if they can truly pursue conciliation, if they can be committed to not calling people names in their anger. And so God, I pray for every man, every woman who today might feel alone because their anger has basically left them alone by themselves because nobody has wanted wants to be around them and have community with them. I pray, God, that rather than them blaming other people, they'll begin to look at themselves, Lord, and that you'll begin to do a deep work in their heart so that they could begin to pursue conciliation with those they've angered, and they will begin to stop name-calling those people that they are angry with. Help us never, ever to look down on somebody in which you have created in the Imago Dei. And so be with us as a church. And I pray, God, that you'll help us. Thank you, Lord, that you taught us. Why, even if we're angry, we are a murderer. And so, God, I pray that we would take this seriously and you'll be with my fellow brothers and sisters as we take on this journey with immediacy towards the path, towards conciliation. And so bless them. I pray that, God, they would see your restoration, your redemptive hand at work in their lives as they do this with a sense of urgency. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. There are a couple next steps that I'd love for you to take. So you can just open up your app right now and go to that communication card, comp card, and there's some next steps. Because it's not just about you listening to God's word, but it's about you actually taking some next steps. The first, I'm committing my life to Jesus for the very first time. If you've never done that and you want to take that step or you've taken that step through the time that we just had in prayer, just check that off and we will get back to you and we will help you to grow in your relationship with God. Second, I'm going to confess the names I call people who are close to me when I am angry. you got to confess that. What I mean by confession is to maybe just write it out, but also to share it with someone as well. Say, listen, maybe your, 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 your good friend of yours is Tom. Say, Tom, when I get angry at my wife, I call her this. When I get angry at my child, I call them this. Confess it. 
confess it, all right? Three, I will take steps of dealing with my anger by pursuing conciliation with one person that I have angered this week. So by this week, by the end of this week, that you will pursue conciliation. You will do it. You will actually call that person, connect with them. You can do it through Zoom. You can do it through a phone call. All right, no texting. Don't do it through text, all right? Do it face-to-face, -face, all right? Four, I want to register for Sacred Space on March 28th at 1.30 p.m. The Sacred Space is for us to get together, and I want to encourage all of us as a church to attend this, all right? And, and we'll give you more information, and we'll give you the, the Zoom link. But it's a talk about Asian-American violence that's been happening in our country, and we need to talk about this. And I want to encourage all of our Asian people, but all of our black and brown people, white people, I want to encourage you to be a part of this. And let's dialogue and talk through this. And let's grow and learn together and support each other through a difficult time for the Asian Americans today in this country, all right? Fifth, please send me more information about the men and women in leadership, what does God think workshop. It's gonna be on March 26th from seven to nine uh, p.m. Uh, our associate uh, superintendent, Barbara Edinger, will be leading this workshop. It's gonna be fantastic. I'm gonna be there. Our staff's gonna be there. I wanna encourage every man and every woman to attend this workshop, all right? It's gonna be a, bl it's gonna be a blessing. Sexism, gender inequality is strong in the church. And we have, as a church, because we care about justice, we have to be about this. Folks, this isn't just so that you can learn. This is a deep spiritual matter that God is concerned about. So just check that off and we'll make sure we give you the Zoom link to attend it, all right? March 26, seven to 9 p.m. Very last, I will pray about who to invite for our Easter service on April 4th. Now I encourage you to invite somebody. Invite somebody to attend that virtual service if you're gonna be watching virtually, but we're also gonna have two services at the hotel at Teaneck Marriott at 9 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. Maybe think about inviting some people you can go with. All right, and, uh, and be a part of that service. So think about that, pray about that, because Easter is the time where even folks who don't go to church will be open to going.